Good morning. My name is Spencer. I actually preach here, although I've been gone, it seems like forever, and then I get back and there's a gospel meeting we have. But I tell you, I've been around places and I'm learning the church is pretty much the same everywhere. There was this really strange guy in Sykeston, Missouri. He kept coming up and saying weird stuff, and I, I didn't know how to take him. And he said, you know what? He said, I got a relative that goes there at Valley View. I said, really? What's his name? He said, Dustin Jones. I said, that makes total sense to me. It makes total sense. There's people like that in every church. I just want you to know, so he's not the only one. And they were, we're just grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that we have visitors. I've met several. There's some, let's see, from Marion, I believe. Uh, someone was from Marion. One of them's from Kennett. We have a, a lady from Kennett, one of our favorite people in Kennett, and their kids go to church camp, her, her kids go to church camp with us every summer. And as soon as I saw her, it just made my day. And then, and then Dana Hayes gets to be here because she usually teaches at Rector, but uh, her family is gone, and so she's here with us, and it makes it just extra good. Just grateful that you're present, and I hope that you came because you want to please God and you want to draw closer to him, and that's what we've been doing the last few moments. If you will make your way to Matthew chapter 27, how many, how many finished the 40 days of prayer and devotion yesterday? How I many went all the way through it and read every bit of it? How many didn't? Shame, shame, shame. You missed out on a great blessing. Anyway, I appreciate y'all participating with that. That's been a fun experience, and I've been rewarded by some, some comments from people. Um, Alfreda Davis is not with us, but she, last week, about right now, she had fallen, I think, Saturday night, and sat, just laid in the floor all night till noon on Sunday. Is that not weird? That lady is the most stubborn woman I've ever met in my life, one of them. Uh, but she's a delightful lady, and, and we've been she was just dismissed, I think, Friday from the hospital, now back at, uh, at home. But Wesley was visiting her in the hospital, and they were talking about Pakasak coming up. Pakasak is almost here. One more week, get your bag here. And then a week from Wednesday, uh, that's when we do the, the Wednesday night thing. We all, that's the most amazing thing to watch and, and to participate in. Uh, but anyway, he was talking about that, and she said, oh, oh, I'm not going to be able to get out and shop. And he's He's like, that's not, don't worry. She said, no, 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 there's a, there's a bag in the closet. Get in that bag in the closet. And so here's, a, here's, a, here's the elder. This is one of the jobs of an elder. Gets in the bag in the closet, gets her purse out. Don't ever do this unless you're an elder and have been requested by the woman. Don't ever do this. Gets into her purse and takes out money that she had designated and said, I'm not going to be able to shop for it, but you go get that. I want to participate and pack a sack. Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing thing. And I love the way it's supported here. And I love the way we do that on Wednesday night. And then that Saturday when we get out there and do that, that's one of the most exciting times, as Matt said earlier. Particip don't miss this. And then I think if you want, if you want, we can give you free ASU tickets uh, th that day, uh, Saturday, you know, because I'm sure they won't sell out. But anyway, we are in any more likely than the Razorbacks will. Matthew chapter 27 is where we'll be in just a moment. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I appreciate so much the great comments at the Lord's Supper time, and I want you to think of Matthew 27. 
Matthew 27 is this scene of Jesus being taken from the garden, basically, at the end of chapter 26, and all the way through to the cross to the burial in chapter 27. Lots of activity going on there, lots of words spoken, lots of tossing him here and there, dragging him around like a puppet, and he says very little. Lots of words in chapter 27, but very, very few of them Jesus' words. He doesn't protest, he doesn't raise a fuss, he doesn't cry injustice, he simply goes through the whole thing in a very resigned way. And if you read chapter 27 alone, in isolation, or if you're reading it to somebody because they want to hear the story of the cross, you'd almost have this glimpse of a Jesus who was somehow resigned, experiencing something he deserved, and not in protest at all. He's yanked around, he's twisted around, he's thrown around, and he does very little of any kind of his own will in chapter 27. It's a very strange view of Jesus. But we read in the story as it's presented, and chapter 26 is before chapter 27. And you really need to get 26 before you go into 27 because it changes your view of chapter 27. What it really is when chapter 27 comes around is that Jesus is focused. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly why he's doing it, and he's willing to do it, and he doesn't second guess, and he doesn't stutter, and he doesn't stammer, and he doesn't falter, and he doesn't turn his back and wonder and second guess himself. He marches all the way through that circus of injustice without any clamoring at all. How does he do it? Chapter 26. Peter once looks back at this, and he talks about how Jesus suffered. 1 Peter chapter 2 on the screen behind me. To this you've been called, saying to us as believers, to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. There'll be some people who say Jesus is an example, he's our atonement, and he is our atonement, but he's also our example. This is how you do it. For what? That you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten. He trusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus, in Matthew 27 resolutely went through that entire thing because he was trusting himself to God and knew it was what God's will was. But chapter 26 reveals how he did it, and that may be more important to us than anything. How did Jesus do this? There's three things you need to know from chapter 26. First of all, Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. Notice what Jesus knows according to chapter 26. Jesus knows that he was about to be crucified. At the beginning of the chapter 26, he says it's in two days. By verse 18, he says it's upon us right now. He knew that he'd be buried. He knew that he'd be betrayed. And he knew who would be the one to betray him. He knew why it was happening in the Lord's Supper scene. He knew that he would live again. He knew that the disciples around him would fall away in the process of all this. But he also knew that he'd be raised back up. He knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. He knew God's will for him was for him to die. And he knew that scripture had ordained all this from years ago. He knew all this in chapter 26. And then in chapter 27, it happens. I want you to know, it looks like Jesus has no clue what's happening in chapter 27, but that's not true. He's the director of the whole scene. No one else knows what he knows. He enters into this fully knowing what he's about to do. He knows everything, sitting in the director's chair, orchestrating the entire thing. No, no something... The second thing, no, Jesus did not want to do it. He knew what had to happen. 
but he did not want to do it. Keep that in your head. That makes the Lord's Supper time so precious. Our Lord did not want to die for us. You get that, right? There in the garden scene, he goes to the disciples, you pray with me. He goes back and he prays and he does this three times. And all three times he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Don't make me do this. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. That's the scene of the garden. Know that Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew fully what he was about to endure. And secondly, know that he didn't want to do it. But know a third thing. He had the power to overcome it all. Also in Matthew 26, don't you think I can call and appeal to my father and send me 12 legions of angels and stop all this? Don't you know I could end all this with a snap of my fingers? What's it mean that he knows everything that's about to happen, all the horrendous details of chapter 27? He knows it's coming. He doesn't want to do it. And he could have ended it all. He could have obliterated all his enemies on the spot. All that happened, all, we know all that from Matthew chapter 26. What's that make you think of Jesus when we gather around the Lord's table every Sunday morning? It was a total choice. He knew it was about to happen and he could have done something about it. And still he resolutely walked right through all that horrendous suffering for us. What's that make you think? Does that not put you in awe of this son of God that we gather around the table to honor? To know that this wasn't something that was robbed of him? That it wasn't something taken from him? These people did not take him and kill him? That he gave himself up? Does that matter a little bit to you? Does that picture of the Savior make you appreciate him? But notice something else, from, again, from 1 Peter. This is also an example. When we gather around the Lord's table, here's the one thing that I want to I do more than anything, is I want to embrace, like Jesus, the not my will but thine be done posture for all my life. We gather here on Sunday morning. One of the things I'm thinking of the most is this. Can I go through another week and do things for him instead of for me? Can I, can I, like Jesus, knowing what his will is, knowing I don't want to do it, and I actually have the power to what, do God's will or not, it's in my free will to do it, can I adopt a posture like Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless one, that not, it's not about my will, it's about his? Can I do that? Matthew 26, I think, contains the key to doing so. You ever been in that spot? You know full well what God wants you to do, but everything within you doesn't want to do it. Have you been here? Am I the only one who's been here? Have you been here? Have you been here this week? Have there been things that God has called you to this past week? I want you to live this way, and I don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. And there's this battle. There is this decision. Here's what God wants me to do, but here's what I want to do. How do you make yourself do what God wants, not what you want? How do we as Americans who are used to fighting for our rights and claiming them all, how do we give them up in order to yield to God's will? That's the entirety of the Christian life. How do we make ourselves do the will of God when so many times it's not ours? Matthew 26 to me holds the key because that's the mastery. That's the thing about Jesus that made him so incredibly impressive. 
He made himself do what he did not want to do. And I want to show you how he did it from Matthew chapter 26. First of all, he reminds himself emphatically why his obedience is important and necessary. In the middle of all the stuff that's going to go around, Jesus says we have to observe the Passover. We have to honor it. The last thing he does with his disciples as a group is he gathers them together and says, we have to observe the Passover. But while they're observing the Passover, he changes everything. All the stuff they're used to about what this represents starts to change. Jesus says, this bread, this unleavened bread that I hold in my hand, this is no longer anything to do with Egypt or the Passover angel or anything like that. This has to do with my body that's given for you. And the disciples can't possibly know what he's talking about yet. But have you ever told your kids things that they don't get yet, but you want to tell them now so that later on they remember? You ever do this? Jesus does this. And he says, this cup contained the fruit of the vine. This is not anything to do with the Passover, Passover lamb's blood. It's not that. Now it's my blood. My blood that is given for many for the forgiveness of their sins. In the middle of all this, Jesus reminds himself, and the Passover was as much for Jesus as it was for the disciples. He stops in the middle of all this before it starts to get out of hand. And before everything starts in earnest, he gets a quiet time with his disciples and says, here's why my obedience is important. Here's why my death is necessary. Here's why I've got to agree to this. Because if I the sins of all the world will not be atoned for. Every person who lives needs me to follow God's will right now to death. Everybody needs this. And there are times in your life, y'all, when you need to sit down and say, why is my obedience to God important? That's one of the reasons we're meeting here this Sunday morning. We're reminding ourselves we need to obey this world, this lost world needs some people to embody the word of God and the will of God out in the world even when we have to deny our own so they, they can learn something about God. People need us to obey, church. Sometimes it's not even for your benefit. Husbands and wives, she doesn't, he doesn't treat her like, she, like he should. She's, man, she could trade him in with somebody who'd be a lot more considerate. And she sometimes wonders that. Man, it'd be easier to get along without him. And she thinks, man, it'd be, I could just get out of this. No, God doesn't want you to. There you got God's will against yours. What are you going to do? And I got to tell you, sometimes the reason you stay is not for you. Sometimes the reason you stay is for those kids you had. Because sometimes your faithfulness is more important for them to see than even for you to model Really, they need to see you. They need to see you obeying even when you don't want to. They need to see it because it's the whole essence of the Christian life. And that's what Jesus does. He stops and says, my obedience is important. Maybe you come home, you know, you've worked hard all day and you sit in your recliner and you want to watch TV and the shows that you want to watch are not what God would want you to watch. You want to go to the internet and kind of and medicate your mind on images there you have no business watching. And you know, you know that God would say no to this. What makes you say when you want to say yes, what makes you do what God wants you to? When you're about to send that text to give that person a piece of your mind or send that post on Facebook, you know you're right, and it's a good thing, and it really digs him, right? But you know God doesn't want you doing that, but everything within you wants to. How do you do what God wants rather than what you want? And one of the reasons is this. Jesus stops in the middle has this Passover meal and reminds himself and the disciples he needs to obey because the 
sins of the world depend upon it. Stop and remind yourself during the week, your faithfulness matters. Chris Lands being a good, good boss at McDonald's matters to those employers, and more than just him. Same for every one of you. But that's not the only time. He gets to the garden scene, right? And there he is battling again. He's battling this really royally. We'll talk about this in just a minute, but he pits two things against each other. Here's what I want, Jesus says, but here's what I know you want. And he battles this. What is going to win? Can I tell you this is going to sound terrible? The reason, if we're weighing this on a scale, do I do this or not? What is the thing that tilts the scale for Jesus to go ahead and do it when he doesn't want to? What is the consideration that weighs so much that it causes him to proceed to death? Is it love for you or is it obedience to the Father's will? It's obedience to the Father's will. I must obey the will of God. He stops and he remembers that. He reflects on that in the garden. And then later on when he says, I could call 12 legions of angels, he said, but how then would scripture be fulfilled? He cares about this. What I'm telling you is he's stopping in the middle of chapter 26, at the end of chapter six, 26, three times he stops and he reminds himself why obedience is important. You need to remind yourself today before you venture out and start another week, why your obedience is important. We serve a God that we were made in his image. He's the prototype. He made us after himself. He knows best how we're to operate. And he doesn't, command, he doesn't give us commands that are burdensome. He gives us commands that give us life and tell us how we can live to the most thriving that we can because he's the creator and he knows. And so he says, this is how you're supposed to live. And when you honor that, you do yourself a big favor. When you discard that and rebel against him, you hurt yourself. We need to be thinking these things. Stop, stop and remember why, why is obedience so important? There are people's names you can put there. There's also your own salvation you can put there. There are reasons why you need to do the will of God even more than your own will. Reflect on those and stop and consider. Second thing you see Jesus do is that he uses prayer as a battle tool weapon. I don't like how this scene is portrayed in funeral homes and on stained glass. You're gonna see, a, uh, there's a picture on here if you can put it up there, yeah. You see this? How many have seen this somewhere? It just, it unnerves me. Those three things in the back almost look like rocks from where you are, but those are the three disciples who are sleeping. You see how Jesus is so peacefully just kind of right next to a rock with a spotlight of heaven graciously shining on him. Do you reckon that's what the garden scene looked like? Do you know why you know it didn't look like that? Jesus went and threw himself on the ground, one of the gospel says. Also, he sweat like what? You may remember he sweat like Drops of blood. I don't know whether there was really blood or if it just, I don't know how you sweat in prayer, 
But you know how usually you only sweat when you're really moving and doing something that gets that heart rate going? Jesus was not having a sanctified moment in the garden. He was having a wrestling match. He was fighting his father. That's what he was doing. And he was using the prayer like he had all his life as a weapon, not against the father, but against himself. He was yielding a sword and he was going to plunge it into his own will. That's what he's doing in the garden of Gethsemane. Do not sanctify it and don't make it look pretty and don't make it look like our public prayers. Do not model your private prayers like we pray up here. This prayer up here necessarily, I'm not criticizing, necessarily has a formal element to it. Jesus says you don't have to say a bunch of words when you're praying in front of people. Get to the point I'm hearing you. So Terry Smith's long prayers, no, they're not necessary. When he leaves, we leave from one of us, don't come out and say, you know how long that was? I don't know how long it was. But I'm going to tell you this. Public prayers are supposed to be that way. Your private ones should not. Your private ones should be battles. There should be moments with God where you are trying to fight against what you know is right. And here's Jesus. Here's what he does. He prays three times. It's the same thing. He is wrestling. Listen, this is not like pray once and you're just going to get over it. No, he's got to keep coming at it. He comes at it and he comes at it and he comes at it. How long must I pray? Until you kill yourself. Until your will has been killed, you keep praying. You keep wrestling. And Jesus comes and he says, God, here's your will. I know what it is, but here's mine. Mine's alive and well in me. And I don't want to do what you want to do. I don't want to do what you want to do. And sometimes in your prayer, go to give God what you want to do. Tell him. He knows already if you're struggling with it. And I want to watch this, God. I want to watch this stuff that's not good for me. And I know what your will is. And I wrestle with it. And I'm going to wrestle with it in this prayer until I take the sword of the prayer and thrust it through my will and kill it. Because I've got to. It's a struggle. It's not glamorous, y'all. Prayer, personal, private Prayer is not to be this glamorous three-minute thing where you say your list and say amen and leave. Wrestle. So us church, we church who are, who are trying to live the Christian life and we're fighting it because what, what we want to do is not what God wants to do. We need to find a garden somewhere. We need to find a garden somewhere and we need to wrestle and we need to be honest. And the disciples saw this. The disciples saw this so clearly, they realized the secret of Jesus is not his preaching and his teaching. They never asked him to, to teach them how to preach and teach, but they did ask him, how do you pray? They've watched him. We've seen you pray all night. How do you pray all night? What do you pray about when you pray all night? That's what they're wondering. We've seen you get up early in the morning before anybody's up and you go pray. What is it about that, Jesus? That's the key. That's the secret. So when he walks into the garden, he says to the disciples, I want you to watch and pray so that you don't fall to what? Come on, church. I want you to watch and pray so that you don't fall to temptation. I don't want you to sin. Listen, Jesus knew the time. I'm telling you, he knew the time better than anybody else. And he says to them, you guys are in a spot where you're about to fall. You guys are in a spot where temptation's coming into this garden in a few minutes and you're gonna need every fiber of your being to not sin. And guess what they did? They slept. They didn't know. They weren't aware of the gravity of the situation and they slept and they didn't pray and they fell. The one person in the garden who did not fall was the one person in the garden who prayed. That's not a coincidence. The secret 
to walking resolutely through chapter 27 was the garden scene of chapter 26. Jesus could proceed to dying completely destroyed by some people who were unjust without second guessing, without turning his back, without complaining and crying and whining and, and all that. He could do all that because he battled all that in the garden. He made up his mind and then he got up from his knees and he never guessed again. He never compromised at all. They didn't kill Jesus. Jesus killed Jesus' will. That's how it happened. And that's what's got to happen with us. There are times in your life when there are things that God wants you to do and you don't want to face them. You don't want to do them. Get your garden scene and you don't do the stained glass prayer. Do the real thing. A third thing that he does in this chapter that allows him to do what he should do rather than what he wants to is that he squints through it. I don't know if you ever squint, but, but, but I started squinting back when I started needing reading glasses. Started looking real. I needed to see real clearly, and I couldn't see real clearly. I'd squint and force myself to compensate for the vision that was going in the reading part, and I'd squint real. And what, what he's saying here, I think what he's doing in chapter 26, he's, he's squinting past the next few days into the time beyond. Three times he rehearses the future. I would say it this way, we look through the near future by looking to the full future. Let me say that again, we look through the near future in order to look to the real future. This is done by us all the time. I am, I've been married to a public school teacher for a long time, and I can tell you how she survives the fall of a new school year. It's called Christmas. You get two weeks coming up. Two weeks coming up, and the way you know, you know, it's, and it's, we just got to endure this next section because Christmas is on the other side. And then when Christmas is over and the new year starts and you go right back, they're kind of a drudgery. And then you're like, well, there's spring break. And then there's Christmas. And everybody's, you're going to come up to me and say, I, I teach in order to shape the souls of people. No, you teach for June, July, and August. Okay. I mean, you, you, you just be as whatever you want to, that, that, you, the, these are moments that just kind of, they, they kind of linger out there, kind of like the donkey with a, 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 I don't mean school teachers are donkeys, I just, I'm saying, it's, you know, you got to put something in front of them that motivates them, and that's what happens, you put something in front of them that motivates them, in this chapter, Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be denied three times by Peter, I'm gonna, but he also says, I'm going to live again, he also says, I'm not going to take this fruit of vine again until I take it anew with you in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to rise from the dead. Jesus knows a fuller future than just the near future. He knows the end of the story. And guess what? God in his grace has given the church the end of the story. We know where this is all going and he gives it to us for a reason because there are gonna be moments in the near future when you're gonna face things that are very trying and are very difficult and they cause you to have to endure and they cause you to have to suffer and they cause you to have to go, ooh, I don't know if I can do this, but you know on the other side. The Hebrews writer puts it like this, who for the joy before him endured the cross. That's how it happens and so we know we know that it isn't always going to be this way. And while we as human beings feel the present more than anything else, we feel the present and we know the gravity of the present. We need to know the future. 
Jesus knows the future. It's not going to be like this forever. I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. But on the other side, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to complete the will of God. I'm going to return to my Father in heaven. And I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. And this is never going to happen to anybody else again. I've got the time frame in my head. And we've got to keep the time frame in our head. The one unique thing about the Christian church as we gather together is that we remind each other of the future. There's nobody else in the world who can tell you what the future looks like. There's no one else can tell you, hey, by and by, we've got our citizenship in heaven and there's a time coming. And you might say, well, that's just wishful thinking. No, it's not wishful thinking. We absolutely know it's there. And it makes a difference in how we live out this week. I, I, I can say that to anybody. I can say, you're going, you, you can see on your horizon, there's something really challenging coming up on you. And you're like, I don't know if I can be faithful in that. I don't know if I can do that when I don't really want to. Make yourself do it because on the other side, you have, you have an absolute sure thing of the future. I think about the holders right now. They know the near future, don't they? I'm very, I'm very careful about this in public because I know how sensitive this must be to them. But this is a communal thing that we are doing here. This is a community-wide family business we're talking about. And I know what lies in the near future. And it, it scares me for them. The gravity is on us. We feel it. The greatest sermon you're going to hear in the next year is going to be nothing from this pulpit. It's going to be from a life of a faithful man among us who's going to march to the next obedient thing, and he's going to show us how it's done. And the way he's going to do it is that he knows on the other side is a fuller future. He's going to squint real hard, and his whole family's going to squint real hard, and this church is going to squint real hard, and we're going to squint together, and we're going to draw pictures of what that looks like. And we're going to see it so clearly in our mind's eye that the near future will not terrify us to where we're not obedient. We're going to see right through it into a future that we know is as real as my hand in front of my face. That's how Jesus did it. That's how he's going to do it. That's how we're going to do it. And that's how you're faithful. And that's how you make yourself obey. When you don't want to. You're going to be called, church, in a dozen ways this week. Small. Small, much smaller than what Jesus did in the garden, but they matter. Those moments matter no matter how small they are. You're going to be called this week, church, to be obedient to God in small things, and you're not going to want to do it. Everything within you is going to say, I'd rather do something else. I'd rather watch Netflix. I'd rather do this. You'd rather do a hundred things, but you need to make yourself do it. That's the nature of the Christian life. Jesus shows us how. He provided the atonement. And that atonement is something that should fill us with appreciation and awe and worship. It should drive you here on Sunday morning to give praise to the name of the God who sent him. But that wasn't just atonement. That was also example. No, you can't provide your own atonement, but you can follow his example. And you can do the not my will, but thine be done. So today we've worshiped. We've gathered around in awe of the table of the, of the Savior who in, in his name we gathered around that table and we remember and we reflect and we honor. How could he do what he did? It's because it was not my will but thine. And we decide that we're going to leave this table, we're going to leave this building, we're going to return to our lives with that very same attitude and follow suit. The steps are laid out for us, church. Jesus laid out the steps. Now go walk in them. 
Now go walk in them the same way he did. And when you need to, stop and remember why your obedience is appropriate. Once in a while, wrestle real hard with God in prayer, and you wrestle until your will is slaughtered. And then when it really gets tough, squint those eyes and see right through it, because there's a future awaiting you. You've got your marching orders. The steps are laid down. God's called you to some things that you don't want to do. Church, go do them anyway. And if you need to respond this morning, we are here to receive your response as we stand and as we sing.